David Howarth, Professor of Law and Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research at the University of Cambridge. David and Simon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today. It's January 2019 and we are looking at the issue of the moment, Brexit. David, can I start with you because you've written on the constitutional implications of Parliament seizing control of Brexit, which is going on as we speak. What do you make of the current situation in Parliament, the debates and the various amendments being put down to these debates? Well, Parliament hasn't yet fully taken control of the Brexit process. It's important to realise that what's happened is that there are a few cracks in the edifice of the existing system. So the existing system, which is actually quite a recent one in its present form, basically gives all the effective time of the House of Commons to the government. And what's happened is that by devices such as amending business motions, the Commons has created some opportunities for it to pass further motions later. So it's given itself opportunities, it hasn't yet taken them. So we'll see where we get in the coming days. But it's important to realise that what's happened isn't particularly radical yet. It could get quite radical, but all that's happened now is is a, a change of the balance inside the system. And it's the ch- a change in the balance that you'd expect with a minority government. So this government doesn't have a majority in Parliament. It's got a supply and confidence agreement with the Democratic Unionists, giving it an extra 10 votes on occasion. But those 10 votes are not guaranteed all the time. They're certainly not guaranteed for procedural motions. And even when the DUP does vote with the government, there are enough potential rebels on the government side to leave the government in a situation where it can't win votes. So it's a minority, in in reality, a minority government situation, and this is what you would kind of expect in that situation. And people have talked about the role of the Speaker, John Burko, whether or not the amendments he's accepting are impartial. He's known to be a Remainer. Do you find that contention around the role of the Speaker surprising? Or does this just happen because it's a minority government? Well, again, the, the basic fact is minority government means that uh, decisions of the Speaker, the Speaker makes these decisions all the time in, in all circumstances, under all forms of government, but they're just more important because the, the Speaker has a power to select amendments. He doesn't accept them. He just says which amendments that have been put down are the ones that are going to be voted on. In a majority government situation, that power, although it's undoubted and unchallengeable power, doesn't really have much effect on the final result of gets passed. But in a minority situation, it does, because if he selects a particular amendment and the support for it, it gets through. But it's important to realise that he doesn't decide whether it gets through. That's a matter for the House. It's what's the majority in the House on that proposal. So all he's doing is giving the House an opportunity to vote on things. And the the question that comes down to, is he exercising that power in a way that finds approval in the House? And if the amendments he selects get through, then that justifies his decision to select it. So he hasn't overstepped the mark? I don't think so. I I think what he's done in one particular instance, did break with previous practice. Although previous practice, as he said, doesn't always determine what you should do in particular circumstances. And this is a very 
particular uh, interpretation about the meaning of the word forthwith. Lots of rules in, in the Commons, standing orders and, and other orders of the House, use this word forthwith, uh, saying a question must be put forthwith. And what that is is an instruction to the Speaker not to allow debate. And so the question is, does it go beyond not allowing debate to include not allowing anyone to move an amendment? And the practice recently, and for quite a while, has been to say that the word forthwith means that not only is there no debate, but also no one can even put an amendment. And so there's a controversy around the fact that, that the Speaker did allow Dominic Grieve to move an amendment when a previous order of the House said that any questions should be put forthwith. So, so he did break with practice there. But I go back to my previous point. That amendment was then approved. It got through. So if people didn't like it, they could vote against it. And they didn't vote against it, they voted for it. So it's true that the, he broke previous practice there, but in the end it was something the House was in favour of. Now people have said, given all that's been going on in Parliament at the moment, they've tried to put blame, and I think blame is the right word, on the Fixed-Term Parliament Act and the fact that governments now have tenure for five years and yet less there's a, a vote of no confidence and in the government. But do you think the Fixed-Term Parliament Act is partially responsible for the situation we find ourselves in? Well, not really. The situation we're in is not particularly affected yet. It might be in the not-too-distant future, but not affected yet by the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. That's because the only difference is what happens when the government loses the confidence of the House. If the government loses the confidence of the House under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, you have to pass a resolution with particular words, and then there are 14 days, and within those 14 days, uh, other people should have a chance to form a government, and if not, um, then you have an election. The old system was that if the, the House expressed no confidence in the government, the government then had a choice between calling an election or resigning. And it was just its choice, and there wasn't a 14-day period, and that wasn't regulated. So what's happened so far is that a vote of no confidence in the form required in the Fixed Term Parliament Act was put down, and the House voted against it. And the government doesn't feel like calling an election, as far as we know, not yet anyway. And so the situation is unaffected by the Fixed Term Parliament Act. The one option that you might think that the Act might affect is if the government wanted an election, but the House voted against it. Right, that's possible. In 2017, government put forward what's called an early election motion, which needs a two-thirds majority under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, saying we want an election and we dare the House to vote us down. And the House didn't vote the government down, there was election. But at the situation we're in, the government's not seeking an election as far as we know, and so the Fixed-Term Parliament Act doesn't make any difference at all. And historically, I think we have to go back to the 17th century, you've written, when Parliament has seized control in a similar fashion. The historical precedence for Parliament seizing control. Well, I think you need a slightly more detailed view of the history than that. It all depends what you mean by seizing control. So when people talk about seizing control now, they're, they're talking about the Commons having control over its own agenda. The Commons really only lost control of its agenda in the 1960s as a result of what happened after the Second World War 
And that only happened because of what happened in the First World War. So in the First World War, the Asquith government said, we need the, all the time of the House. There'd be no private members' time at all because we need it for wartime legislation. But Asquith promised that at the end of the First World War, he would, the government would return to the previous system where the government had three days a week and private members had two days a week. That's the traditional system. Earlier in the 19th century, it was the government got by on two days a week. And earlier in the 19th century, it wasn't clear the government had any days, but he could get the House to vote for, for days, and there was kind of practice that it would have two days. So this idea of, of government control of the whole of the House's time, apart from a few Fridays, private members' bills, but all the other days are government days, that's a quite recent idea. It's very important to realise a recent idea. Uh, but at the end of the First World War, Lloyd George was Prime Minister, and he proposed and got through returning to the previous system. So that actually happened. You know, the government promised to, to, to go back to the previous system. Uh, at the end of the First World War, that happened. Then the Second World War, the government again proposed that for the duration of the war, the government would take all the time of the House. And then 1945, the Attlee government came in, and unlike after the First World War, the Attlee government moved to retain the rule that the government took the whole of the House's time. And there's an interesting debate on, on that order where Churchill says that what the government is proposing, you know, to extend the wartime measure into peacetime, was dictatorial and totalitarian. This is quite a, a recent thing, and it's also associated with various constitutional theories but th that I'll talk about in, perhaps in a minute. Well, David, thank you. You've elaborated on what's going on in Parliament at present with Parliament itself trying to take control, certainly of the parliamentary agenda from government. Simon, if we turn to you now, let's look at it from the other side of the channel. How does the EU view these goings on, given that they've signed a withdrawal agreement with the British Prime Minister, Theresa May? Yes, yeah, so I think the first point about the withdrawal agreement from the European Union's perspective is that they think they conceded a lot to, to get to this point. Their position all along has been that the single market customs union arrangements they have are not really divisible, that for the UK to have frictionless trade with mainland Europe after Brexit isn't really possible if the UK won't sign up to the four freedoms and a whole set of internal market rules. As it turned out, the withdrawal agreement that the May government negotiated does involve some division of these competences and powers. What was agreed in the end was a common customs territory between the UK and the EU, which is not exactly single market participation, but does give the UK, or would give the UK, the possibility of tariff-free trade with mainland Europe. And there is, of course, also the issue of the Irish border, which puts Northern Ireland in a very particular position of signing up not to all the single market rules, but to rules on the free movement of goods in order to avoid checks. Now, the EU's position is that it negotiated this deal in good faith with the UK government. It thinks it's a perfectly good deal. It's a complicated legal arrangement, and they're not prepared to row back on it in the sense of giving the UK more leeway without the UK itself making more concessions on signing up to EU single market rules. So I think in Brussels at the moment, the position that they're taking is, we've made this agreement with you, we conceded a lot, it actually puts some of our own arrangements at risk, uh, in, in a sense, 
and they can't perhaps, I think, really completely fully understand why it's not being agreed to. Do you think perhaps the size of the defeat for Theresa May on the withdrawal agreement, the largest in history by 230 votes, might strengthen her hand? That's what some commentators are saying, because then the EU can see she doesn't stand a chance of getting this agreement through Parliament, and surely they want the UK to have an agreement and not to leave on no-deal terms. No, I think that, and this has become clear in the past few days because of things said by the Commission President Juncker, by Donald Tusk, the Council President, and also by the Irish Prime Minister. I think that if there's no deal, the EU is taking the view that almost the very next day, negotiations will again have to begin between the EU and the UK for a free trade agreement between the UK and the EU, and also for a solution to the Irish border problem. Both sides have a problem. The UK and Ireland have a problem over the threat to peace in Northern Ireland if border posts return. But the EU officials and senior politicians have made it completely clear that they're not going to make an exception for the Irish border to the normal rules on, on checks which, of course, also stem partly from WTO law. Okay, so the EU is basically saying there will be a border uh, of a very different kind if a no-deal Brexit goes ahead. Now, to, to solve the problem of not returning to border posts and all that in on the island of Ireland, there'd have to be some sort of agreement between the UK and the EU. There would, in addition, have to be, at some point, a free trade agreement or some other basis for trade between the UK and the EU if we were to avoid a completely calamitous situation. These negotiations basically begin again, but the EU still holds all the cards. It will say to the UK, first of all, you cannot renege on the commitment which is binding in international law you've already made to pay into the EU budget. So the 39 billion can't just be avoided by the UK. The EU will again say to the UK, if you want a free trade deal with us, then you have to solve the problem of the Irish border in a way that, that we find acceptable. The bottom line here is that the UK is negotiating at the moment with a much more powerful counterparty, 27 member states against one, important as the UK is to large trading partners on the mainland. It's not as important to Germany or to France as keeping the EU single market together and avoiding any kind of implication that existing frictionless trade within the EU might be questioned if a bespoke deal is done with the UK. It's much more important for Germany to maintain borderless trade as it currently stands than to make a bespoke agreement with the UK that might call it into question. So even worse for the UK, the negotiating position gets even more difficult for the UK if we were to leave. Because at the moment, what we're looking at is a situation where we haven't yet left, where what's more, what's on the table from the EU is a withdrawal agreement that basically keeps us semi-within the camp for a while. Many of the same rules continue to apply. We trade as normal for a certain period. And the EU is prepared to sit down with us under that arrangement, with a backstop then in place to negotiate a free trade agreement. At least in that situation, the UK isn't faced with the calamity of a chaotic no deal, which would be catastrophic for the UK's own economy, and maybe for issues involving public health and public emergency type questions. If we're in a no deal Brexit, where the UK is immediately faced with a loss of trading links to the continent, where there will be most likely some version of a public emergency that needs dealing with, the UK is in an even weaker position to negotiate with the EU. So the, the idea that we have to really stand up to the EU at this point and threaten to walk away, and if, if we do that, 
the EU will agree to whatever we want is, I think, completely misconceived. Right. So you're turning to conventional wisdoms or arguments at the present time in January 2019 on their head. The first is that the EU will drop the Northern Ireland backstop mm. from the withdrawal agreement, something that's being negotiated at the moment and mooted. And the second is, if we get no deal, it will be easier for us to trade. So on first point, I think it's unrealistic. I, I can't completely predict what would happen, of course, we're all guessing to a certain extent. But I think the best understanding of the situation is that the EU won't cave on the backstop. That's most likely to be what happens for the reasons we've just discussed. Then the argument that we have more free trade in the event of no deal has, of course, been much discussed and has been shown to be wrong. Because the effect of leaving without a deal is that we don't just lose our trading arrangements with, with mainland Europe, but also we lose the 40 or so other arrangements we have for free trade with third countries, all of which go through the EU. So the effect on our trading position of a no-deal, a chaotic Brexit would be calamitous. In the medium term, that would mean that the UK just becomes much poorer, that exporters go out of business, most likely. But also in the short run, and this is a bit more difficult to gauge, in the short run there could well be a public emergency involving shortages of drugs, shortages of food and other very negative implications of public order. We don't really know how bad it would be until it happens, but if we were operating on normal risk assessment principles, what employers do, what businesses do all the time, what they have to do. There's no sense in which a business, a university, a public sector body could possibly take that degree of risk. But our government and our MPs, it seems, are, are willing to take that risk. And also, as sort of another thing that's being mooted at the moment is a second referendum. I'll come to you on that in a moment, David. But Simon, people say that if you have a second referendum, it involves issues of democracy, of letting down the leave so-called left-behind voters. That's become common accepted reality at the moment, that somehow you're betraying the referendum. And constitutionally, referendums aren't embedded in UK parliamentary procedures. So in a way, nobody knew how to implement the referendum or what to do. But do you think it kind of lets down referendum voters to have a second referendum? I suppose there are two ways of thinking about this. One is a, a rather legalistic way of looking at it, which says a constitution doesn't require decisions to be taken by a referendum. This referendum was stated only to be advisory, and clearly we can revoke Article 50 any time we want by an Act of Parliament and by an executive decision to then revoke Article 50 with the EU. That, that may be a bit too legalistic for some people's tastes, but let's, let's think about it in a slightly broader sense. Countries which have referendums, as a matter of course, often have frequent referendums on the same issue. So they will go back to the people again on an issue. In Switzerland, there are probably every year, I think, dozens of referendums, or at least every decade, there may, there may be dozens or hundreds. So the idea that you have a referendum, and then you never discuss this issue again by referendum or otherwise, and you're bound in forever, is, I think, something that doesn't completely make sense. If you think referendums are important and you should go back to the people, you should go to the people for a vote, it makes no sense at all to say you can't go back to them at a particular point. So constitutionally, legally, practically in terms of politics, having a second referendum 
Okay, that may be a good or bad thing, depending on your view about Brexit, but there's clearly no constitutional bar on a second referendum, and there may be every reason to hold one. But at this point, that's clearly up to Parliament, isn't it? If Parliament decides that there has to be a second referendum, for whatever reason, the best we can say is that's completely permissible constitutionally, and I imagine that if such a referendum were voted through by Parliament, it would take place, yeah. David, a second referendum, would that be letting down the leave voters or is it constitutionally an option that Parliament might eventually find agreement on? There's said to be no majority in Parliament for a second referendum at the present time, hence amendments that suggest one wouldn't go through. Well, Simon says we don't have any bar on referendums, we don't have any requirement for referendums. Some constitutions ban them, the German constitution bans them for obvious reasons. Some constitutions encourage and require them, as in Switzerland, and quite a few incorporate them in a particular way, so that you can have a, a referendum about a particular proposal, and the referendum uh, decides whether it becomes law or not. And I think our problem is not thinking ahead about what sort of referendums we are in favour of. Should we take the German route, which is never to have referendums? Do we take the Swiss route, of having lots of referendums? Or do we take the view that you see, for example, in the Italian constitution, of only having referendums as a very clear proposal, which has legal consequences? That's, that's why there's so much confusion about this. Uh, there's also confusion because we set up our politics in a very peculiar way, where at least people in the system, I'm not sure whether people outside the system think of this, but people in the system think of a general election as a sort of referendum. Uh, with two competing manifestos. I say manifestos, virtually no one's read, but, but, but two competing manifestos, and you either vote for one or the other, and that's a plebiscite. But then you end up in a situation with the 2016 referendum where you have a, a kind of competing plebiscite, a competing referendum. So that doesn't make a lot of sense either, and it's very, very confusing. And the system isn't set up to, to deal with that kind of competing mandate. The underlying problems here are political and in fact, if you look at when in Britain we have referendums, we have referendums when parties are split. And there's some enormous question that we can't decide because of division inside the government and often inside the opposition. For 1975 referendum, that's because there was an irreconcilable split in the Labour Party about Europe. We had the, even the AV referendum we had in 2011 was an irreconcilable split, not within parties, but inside the government, between the two parties in the government. And then the 2016 referendum, again, divided party really only there because David Cameron thought, thought of it in terms of party management. And so you ask yourself where we are now. Well, where we are now is the same. We have got vastly divided governing and main opposition parties that don't seem able to resolve the issue in the way which issues have been resolved um, purely in parliamentary terms. So that by itself is an indication uh, historically that we, we're now on the, on the verge of another referendum. Now, there's also a matter of principle, which, which, which I don't think people have thought about enough or even at all which is how long should you have between referendums on the same question? If you're thinking about this abstractly without thinking about the particular circumstances we've got now. So in Parliament, for example, there's a rule that you can't put the same question to the House twice or more than once in the same session. 
So the parliamentary rule is basically you can do anything again after a year. You change your mind after a year. And in fact, some sorts of motion you can bring back because the second vote is thought to be different from the first because circumstances have changed. But nevertheless, that's a year. What should be an ideal time between referendums? Now, some constitutions actually regulate this and say you can't bring it back within a year or you know, there are special rules about how to deal with the situation. What is the test? And I think, well, one test is you look at the majority and you ask yourself whether, because of the way that majority was constituted, how big it is, who voted for it, whether it's reasonable to think that you might get a different result in the second referendum or an additional referendum without anyone having changed their minds. If you have a referendum where the population is so strongly in favour of something that ten years later, you know, it was an enormous majority, even though the, the, the electors obviously changed demographically, you know, new voters coming in, other people leaving, dying, that sort of thing, even though you've got that situation, that, that, that change, people are still going to say the same thing. Then you think, well, it's pushing things to push it back to the referendum in those circumstances, because what would be the point? But if you have a referendum where the result is very close, and if you have one, especially the one we had, where you have this enormous difference between the views of different generations, then you might get to a point where you think, well, it's legitimate to put this back to the people sooner than you would otherwise. So, so there's this idea, in the Scottish referendum, there's this question about once in a generation and what's a generation. And that, that kind of assumes that every generation has the same view. And so after you know, 30 or 40 years, the electorate might have changed so dramatically that that would be a point in which you, you, know, you go back. But the one we had was one where, even after this period, it, it was so radically different in terms of opinion between different generations that it might be a different sort of situation. Now, we know that the Cabinet can't agree. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place with half wanting to go for some kind of soft Brexit and the other half still campaigning for her perhaps dropping out with no deal. But also Labour is split too and Corbyn is said not to want another referendum, not even realistically to perhaps want to go into another general election campaigning for Remain, which some of his MPs want him to do, and constituency parties. But he has said that he would like to renegotiate with the EU, perhaps looking closely at some of the state aid clauses and principles. May had her red lines. These arguments that you can renegotiate now at the 11th and a half hour... I mean, you did touch on it, Simon, but how realistic is it that if you had a change of government, perhaps even a government of national unity, you could go back to the EU, we could still Brexit on the 29th of March 2019 and get some kind of different deal because different people are in charge. Is that realistic? Well, it's difficult to see how there could be a renegotiation before the 29th of March. The withdrawal agreement that we currently have was negotiated over a period of time in excess of a year. And if we're to renegotiate it now, then obviously the question is, how is it to be renegotiated? What Labour's saying is that they want a permanent customs union and probably the EU would be prepared to move in that direction because that would bind the UK in, I think, to a wider range of internal market rules, although which exactly it's not clear. And that prevents us having 
independent trade deals with the rest of the world. Yes, well, of course, that's also the consequence of the backstop uh, as currently drafted. At the moment, though, the withdrawal agreement we've got is a temporary customs territory customs union in effect with the EU and the assumption is at some point that will be negotiated and contrary to the Brussels agreement which was initially drawn up in December 2017 that said that the final free trade agreement would have to contain something similar to the backstop the current withdrawal agreement doesn't say that the political declaration is much looser but we must assume it would still be the EU's objective with any free trade agreement that the backstop would be in there. So you might well still be in a position where the UK couldn't agree deals with with third parties, even with a free trade agreement with the EU. That's probably where they're going, but we don't know for sure. Uh, So what's really difficult to see is how either party, if they found themselves in government, could go back and renegotiate things with the EU by the 29th of March. But presumably there's a different government. They would ask for Article 50 for the triggering of Article 50 to be postponed. I think they would really have to do that to renegotiate. How a Labour government would renegotiate, we we don't really know. What they've offered in outline terms only, that's all we really have to go on. There's six tests. Well, the six tests are quite are rather different, I think, from saying we want a permanent customs union. I think the six tests are really saying these are conditions for supporting the May government. But once they get into power, they may well, if they were to do so, they may well do something a bit different. But I think they'd go to Brussels and say... We're prepared to agree with you now a permanent and deeper trade relationship and regulatory relationship, and the EU would probably be inclined to agree with that because that doesn't infringe their own so-called red lines, which require the basic legal infrastructure of the internal market to be maintained. But for Labour to do that, there would have to be, I think, a, a postponement to Article 50. That also appears to be their thinking. Now, in terms of where we stand with the withdrawal agreement, if Mrs May's government continues in office for a few more weeks, it will bring back a version of the current withdrawal agreement before the 29th of March. And I think that its expectation at that point is that, faced with no deal, enough MPs might be persuaded to vote for it. So that's what I think will happen. They won't try to renegotiate this now. And the argument of the European Reform Group or the DUP that they should go back to Brussels for the removal of the backstop, that's, I think, the reasons we discussed earlier, just not going to happen. So I don't believe that if if Mrs May comes back next week and says, my plan B is to go back and renegotiate the backstop, that this will lead anywhere at all. It won't lead anywhere. And we probably would find ourselves then very near to the March 29th deadline with Mrs May bringing back the withdrawal agreement. Maybe there could be some slight amendments to the political declaration. But remember, that's not legally binding anyway, so that's really neither here nor there. Whether that would be enough to persuade the ERG, the DUP, to come on board is very hard to say. So we're perilously close to a no deal, really, if the withdrawal agreement doesn't get through. Right. So what we're looking at at the moment is no deal. That's the most likely outcome, because Parliament's decisively voted against Mrs May's deal, the withdrawal agreement, but nothing else is on the table at the moment. And the May government's position will, I think, be to not transgress, as they would put it, their own red lines. All they're going to offer is an attempted renegotiation over the backstop. That will most likely fail. They're going to bring back the withdrawal agreement in some form and say, that's it to Parliament. You either agree it or you don't. And then we're in a situation where, because the majority against the withdrawal agreement was so large, it almost certainly won't go through. The Labour Party's position is not to support the withdrawal agreement, although their permanent customs union is something that's compatible with the withdrawal agreement in this sense. The withdrawal agreement only sets up a process. Once the period of transition is over, and if the backstop were then to come into force, 
the backstop itself is only temporary and will be removed at some point once a permanent trade agreement is arrived at. So Labour's position that it wants a permanent customs union is not at all incompatible with the, with the withdrawal agreement. If they were in power, they would get the possibility of negotiating that because a political declaration part of, of the agreement made with the EU leaves it completely open. And indeed, the temporary customs territory that we're talking about under the backstop, although not exactly the same as a permanent customs union, is actually very close to it. So the Labour Party's position on not agreeing to the withdrawal agreement, we can only reasonably conclude, is a political position that has almost nothing to do with the actual contents of, of the withdrawal agreement. The position of the ERG and perhaps of the DUP is a more principled position in the sense that what they're standing for is incompatible with the backstop. Although, of course, one might say to them, again, that's only a temporary arrangement. You may find a way to negotiate it away in due course. The withdrawal agreement is a process. The point about the withdrawal agreement, and the thing to constantly bear in mind, is that the single most important thing it does is provide for the transition period. Because without that, there's a chaotic no deal. So, from my perspective on this, for the MPs to have voted for the triggering of Article 50 and then not to vote for the withdrawal agreement, unless there can be something else put forward, is in effect a vote for no deal. And if nothing else happens, that's what will happen. David, if we come to you finally, Parliament is in a quagmire. There have been already realignment of our politics across party, either you're a Brexiteer or you're a Remainer, you're a hard Brexiteer or you're a soft Brexiteer. Amendments to various motions are being put down, as we discussed earlier. Do you think perhaps we might see some kind of national government in the country's interest formed? How likely is it that party politics will be reinvented in Westminster over the coming weeks around, if you like, the Remainers and the Brexiteers, with the Remainers taking control? Well, this is quite possible. Solves all the procedural problems you might have because the, you then become the government. And just as the backstop's temporary, people would say this government's temporary, but just like the backstop's probably not temporary, uh, such a arrangement itself would probably have some political permanence. Well, it's a political question rather than a legal one. It is quite easy, technically, to do if you have a majority. And if the Queen, for example, can be assured that there's a majority for it and therefore she wouldn't have to do anything political to make it come into being, then you might have to do something in Parliament to demonstrate they'd had a majority and there are some procedural barriers to that, maybe. What would you need to table? Well, any new government needs to show it's got the confidence of the House. So if government you know, of that sort got into position, then there wouldn't be a problem because it then have a, a, a very short Queen's speech and you have a vote of confidence at the end of that. So the, the problem is not that point. The problem is before then is showing that, that anyone who wanted to form such a government had a majority. Now, it, it could be really easy because it could be that there are so many people in favour of it that all they have to do is sign an early day motion which never gets debated because early day motions are just a kind of form of parliamentary graffiti, but at least you can show support. So, you know, maybe you have an early day motion where 450 people sign it saying we're in favour of this new government. At that point, you, you don't actually need to pass anything. You know, they've got the names on the, on the piece of paper. If you need to do something more 
dramatic than that, then you might have to do a follow-up motion to the various motions that are being proposed now, if the, the previous government refuses to go, for example. I don't think, unless we're in a situation where Mrs May just tries to play the system and refuses to, to do the right thing, and is prepared to embarrass the Queen, which I actually don't think Theresa May would be prepared to embarrass the Queen. It seems obvious that some people on the Brexit wing are prepared to embarrass the Queen. Uh, we had proposals from Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, for prorogation of Parliament to defeat Yvette Cooper's bill. That's bringing the Queen into politics, and so it's an extraordinary, almost anarchistic view. Destruction of all the institutions just for a particular political end. I don't think that Theresa May would have that view, so I don't think that she'd be the kind of person who would cause a crisis. And so then, the, you know, rather, rather simple methods like having an early day motion and people sign it would work. That's for a brand new government. Mrs May could form a national government. That's how Ramsay MacDonald formed a national government. It was just like a, an enormous cabinet reshuffle where the people coming in were from different parties from the people going out. So, so the Prime Minister can really very easily you know, create a national government. So this can be done. I, uh, the question is whether people are willing to overcome their party tribal loyalties. And that leads us to the question that people are demanding a free vote on Brexit as we go forward. But all it would take is for MPs in Labour and the Conservative Party, and perhaps elsewhere, SNP too, to not abide by their party whips, thereby Parliament really taking control, because the MPs are just going to say, well, we're going to have a free vote anyway. We're not going to be whipped into voting anymore. Yes, well, whipping is voluntary anyway. If you're prepared to take the cost of voting against your party, then you can do it. It's not a proxy vote system. You know, the whips don't own your vote. And it's possible for whipping to collapse. And, in fact, this has happened in the past on, not, on issues not quite as important as this. But the vote on the report of the Right Committee on the reform of the House in 2010, that was opposed, the, the conclusions of the Right Committee were opposed by both front benches, and yet backbenchers and the third, fourth and fifth parties between them defeated both front benches at the same time. So it's, it's not entirely unprecedented. The difference would be politically that, that then that was simply the internal regulation of the House and not a high-profile political issue. This is the highest-profile political issue of our age. And so if whipping collapsed on this issue, I think it's the it's the end of the party system that we have and the start of a new party system. So history will judge this period as probably one of the most significant in Parliament's history to date. But do you, David, agree with Simon that if May's withdrawal agreement doesn't get through, it looks as if the UK will be leaving the EU on the 29th of March this year under no deal? It's a high probability now, isn't it? High stakes. Well, it's high probability in that the people who want to stop it might fail to stop it because they don't have the courage to go through with the political consequences of what you have to do to stop it. This is why it's just an interesting and somewhat worrying period. How important is this for people? Is it more important than their careers? And in some cases, some of the people talking about this, they've said it's more important than their careers. Is it more important than their tribal party loyalties? And for some people it is, but for other people it isn't. And if no deal happens, I think it will in the end be the triumph of the tribal. And 
clearly, Simon, no deal for business and the many trading regulations and agreements we have is going to be not just bad for business, but also it's going to economically not lead to growth, but a dip in the UK economy. That seems to be the consensus view of economists, although, of course, Brexiteers would challenge that. I have to add that. Well, okay. So even economic forecasts like those of the CBR written by Graham Gudgeon and his colleagues do not forecast gains from Brexit in the short run at all. And the CBR forecasting model predicts a quite significant dip in economic activity, in particular if there's no immediate possibility of a free trade agreement with the EU or some substitute for the current EU membership that we have. Only a a few very few economic forecasts predict even medium-term gains from Brexit. And if there's a chaotic Brexit, what's difficult to predict is the are the effects of that chaos. So the economic forecasts we have are mostly based upon extrapolations, which look at the costs of tariffs. And tariffs are a really very insignificant part of the story if there's no deal. Much more significant would be disruption to established legal and institutional understandings of how trade even takes place and how it affects, for example, supply chains. That's why this week there have been public announcements by Airbus and previously by the major car companies like Jaguar, Land Rover, Toyota and Nissan and Honda. That's why those announcements have been made, that a no-deal Brexit would be so harmful to them. It's why also there is genuine public concern about the impact of a no-deal on the, the, the flow of trade across the channel in essential items, including drugs and food. Now, again, we don't really know how cataclysmic and catastrophic in the short run the impact of all that would be because it's very difficult to forecast chaos. What we can be fairly clear about is that for the UK to move from being an open economy, one of the most open in the world, to almost overnight becoming a semi-closed economy without normal legal trade arrangements with the numerous countries it currently has trade with, affecting well over half of our external trade. Okay, You move from an organised trading relationship to a thoroughly disorganised one almost overnight. It's unlikely that could have no impact. And the non-linear cumulative effect of that on the UK economy, we can't easily predict, but it, it surely wouldn't be good. So that's why people are concerned about no deal. And that's why just brushing it off by saying it won't happen or it's project fear is just about the most irresponsible thing that one can say right now. And David, good that can come out of this period of constitutional change in the UK, in government processes and in parliamentary procedures, it is leading to perhaps a more pluralistic politics, you've written, that in fact these tribal loyalties of, that have been prevalent since the Second World War, the two-party system, are breaking down now. And we don't know, in truth, even looking forward a month, what's going to happen. We don't. It could just all revert to the old system, rather the system that's developed since the 1950s, it's the second, post-Second World War system where Parliament doesn't really matter, it's a shadow play, that the parties control their members, that parties put forward manifestos, the manifestos vote on by the electorate. After that, it doesn't really matter what happens in Parliament, everyone just shouts at one another for five years, or maybe four years until you have another election, and nobody else matters. That's the manifesto mandate system that we have, and it's the system on which existing parliamentary procedure is built. But we are seeing that breakdown, 
And I think we're seeing it break down f not just for short-term reasons but for long-term reasons, which is that that system requires there to be two things. One is that most members of parliament are only in parliament to become ministers. And so their own thoughts and careers and, and political objectives are all about becoming a minister and then maybe getting something done when you're a minister, though when people become ministers they then realise that you need to be prime minister and so on. People's careers, goals are all aimed at being ministers and therefore they don't want parliamentary procedure to get in the way of ministers even when they themselves are not ministers. That's the first pillar. The other pillar is that parties in parliament all aim at being government and there are only two of them. and what we've had in the, over the past period is the rise in particular of the SNP which is a party whose goal in the commons is not for its leaders to become ministers that's the, the political objective of the SNP has got nothing to do with Westminster. In fact, it's to withdraw from Westminster. Maybe in Scotland, if you're an SNP politician, what you want to do is become a minister, but it's not the case in Westminster. But even beyond that, that we've had um, other third parties, Liberal Democrats, for example, anyone joining the Liberal Democrats obviously doesn't think that their political career is a ministerial career. It's got a different goal. So the rise of these third parties, third and fourth parties, completely incompatible with the the mandate manifesto theory of politics. And so you combine that with having referendums and competing plebiscites, you have a, a, a situation of constitutional confusion. And the question is, what's going to happen in the future? Are we going to snap back to a two-party system? Uh, maybe if Scotland becomes independent or people in Scotland stop voting SNP, that might happen. Or are we going to move to a situation where people just need to face the fact that Parliament is not full of people who care only about being a minister in the future, and that therefore Parliament is going to matter more, and parliamentary debate is going to be debate about what to do rather than just basically permanent election campaigning for the next election, and decisions we made in Parliament. Now, if that happens we have to recast the whole of parliamentary procedure because we, we need to think about what, what kind of thing should we allow Parliament, should we, do we want Parliament to decide, and what power should the government have, assuming that it's going to be a minority government, what power should the minority government have through being the government. Um, I don't think people have even started to think that through. Well, Simon, let's end up where we began with you, with just the view from the EU again. I mean, people are also hoping that what might come out of this change is some different kind of economic model, not just for the UK, but for Europe too, a more redistributive model of economics, not just this huge pay gap between the top and the bottom. But the EU... Does it see this as an opportunity in any way to kind of recast its thinking? Could it be an opportunity for the EU, which has its own problems? Well, I think we'll have to leave for another day the, the, the future of the EU, which, of course, is also going through an exceptionally turbulent time. And the upcoming European elections will, will be a, a possibly decisive moment for the EU. And we are forgetting about this at the moment because of our focus, of course, on Brexit. So I think because these are the issues of cohesion, 
and unity within the EU and the EU's own political future are very unclear right now. Brexit's a distraction. And again, may also explain why the EU may not want to be in a position to make a different offer to us as far as a withdrawal agreement is concerned. They would, I think, want to, at least the people currently leading the EU, people like Juncker, Tusk, people like Merkel uh, and Macron, are still committed to an integrationist agenda. To, to varying degrees, and are also committed to something like the existing U- EU model being continued, which is, and, and this is partly again why Brexit's been such a big issue for the UK, which is that frictionless trade, free trade, goes hand in hand with a certain regulatory model. I suppose you would call it a coordinated economy model, Christian democratic or social democratic. This is at stake at the moment in the European Parliament elections coming up, but that's still their model. And that model, that integrationist plus protective model, that served mainland Europe really well for the past four decades, I would say, notwithstanding the financial crisis, and the UK as well, served us really well. The UK's departure from the EU would probably help those who want to pursue that particular integrationist agenda. Now, that, that again, is a factor to consider when thinking about the psychology of Brexit. It may again help to explain why there are not lots of people rushing forward in Brussels right now to help the UK out of its predicament. And when Tusk or Juncker say, we want the UK back in the fold, they really want the UK for, of course, that integrationist, that long-term integrationist agenda. So in a sense, the argument that Remainers and Leavers have in this country is really an argument about the politics of that as well. On either side of the political divide, social democrats and Christian democrats in this country, their equivalent anyway, are probably largely committed to that model for the EU and for the UK. Most Remainers would, would see that model as, in a sense, a kind of social market economy as worth pursuing for the UK. And those who don't want it are largely on the Leave or Eurosceptic side. That's another issue going underneath the debates that we're having in this country in which we've been discussing. So, of course, were Brexit to happen in cataclysmic or chaotic way, the huge cost of that will be borne by the UK. Very little cost, I think, actually will be borne, in the short run anyway, by the EU. And maybe going forward for the EU, the UK's absence will not in any way harm the integrationist agenda, but there are other things that could knock that off course. What I think is most likely to happen if there's a no deal and a chaotic Brexit departure is that, as far as the UK is concerned, the issue of our relationship with the EU won't at all end. It comes right back on to to the agenda almost straight away of UK policymakers because of the need to discuss a free trade agreement with the EU and to deal with the Irish border problem. And given the closeness of the vote in 2016 and the possible chaotic consequences of a no-deal Brexit, there will continue to be a significant political movement across both parties for a closer relationship with the EU, and it may well turn into a a position that says that we should consider re-entering the EU. That won't disappear. The EU and our relationship to the EU will continue to dominate British politics for the foreseeable future. And perhaps if we re-enter in four or five years' time with Schengen free movement and with full monetary union. That would be a paradox. Let's see what happens. All I'm saying is that the the Brexit issue doesn't end with a no-deal Brexit. 
the consequences of Brexit still have to be worked out, and this will dominate British politics in whatever form it, it, it takes going forward. And what we've been discussing this afternoon, the possibility even of a political realignment, maybe even some sort of national unity government, that isn't off the agenda, even if Brexit takes place on the 29th of March, because what we're going to see, I think, is with ever greater urgency, the need for a deal with the EU of some sort, even if there's a no-deal Brexit. So we shouldn't be at all surprised if close a rapprochement with the EU and some attempt to recalibrate our relationship with the European Union comes right back onto the agenda very quickly after March if there's a no-deal Brexit. I have to just ask you, David, do you agree, just very succinctly? Yes, I think the, the issue will dominate British politics for the foreseeable future. It doesn't matter what the result is, whether it's the deal, no deal, or a referendum and remain, that possibly of those three, remain's got the best chance of reducing the degree of domination, but even then it'd still be one of the big issues. And if there is a realignment of politics, it will be around that issue, because like free trade, it's an all-pervasive issue. It reaches all parts of the economic and political system. David Howarth, Simon Deacon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today, looking at the thorny issue of Brexit. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Bonnie.